Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundswell Podcast. Today, we are at City of Refuge, and I'm here with Pastor Billy Humphrey, who is the founder and executive director of City of Refuge Baltimore and is committed to seeing the lives of those in his community transformed. We are here at the City of Refuge main campus, which will be the site of the City of Refuge Community Resiliency Hub, the first resilience hub in Maryland that will allow a nonprofit to receive direct benefits of solar and storage as a provision of the Inflation Reduction Act. Pastor Billy, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. Um, Do you mind just um, introducing yourself and just kind of giving a little bit of your background? Sure. Billy Humphrey. I'm the executive director and founder here at City Refuge. Um, We're located in the Brooklyn community of Baltimore in the southernmost part of the city. Um, I'm from here. This is my hometown, but um, City Refuge um, exists to bring light, hope, and transformation to individuals and families. And uh, really our goal is to be kind of a a one-stop shop for people in poverty and crisis. And we follow um, uh, uh, an organization uh, from in Atlanta called City Refuge Atlanta. We follow like mission, vision, and values there, but separate organization. And uh, the way we tackle um, systemic poverty and uh, come alongside families in crisis as we uh, break through five major impact areas, health and wellness, workforce development, youth empowerment, supportive housing. And then uh, we also focus on anti-trafficking as uh, where we are here in Baltimore is an open air drug trade, open air sex trade, um, food desert, digital desert, bank desert. Um, so we have a lot of uh, challenges, but also a lot of opportunities. Definitely. Um, And this upcoming Resiliency Hub is just going to be, you know, an added benefit to all of the services you provide. Um, And to many people, the term Resiliency Hub is novel or even unfamiliar. So what would you like people who live or work near the City of Refuge to know about the Resiliency Hub you operate? So I think, uh, you know, when I think of Resiliency Hub, it's, uh, it's um, you know, we're going to be here, right? We're, and we're going to resilient, we're stand, we're going to stand, we're going to be here. So when families are in crisis, uh, whether that is due to um, natural disaster, man-made cause, um, whatever it might be, um, we're somebody that they can trust, somebody that they can count on. As a matter of fact, we try to operate from the principle of trust first and establish a trusting relationship is what... Um, uh, I think is so critical in this work as it relates to resiliency is because people have to trust that you're going to be there and then uh, they can um, they can um, look to you and you can stand together and lean on one another to um, accomplish the goals that you have in front of you. Absolutely. And I think across the board with all of the programs you serve, community trust is a huge aspect of that. How would you say the best part way to go about gaining that community trust is? Because I know it's a process. Yeah, it's absolutely. I think, you know, we always say, again, trust first, right? So right off the bat, we're, we're trying to serve them um, in, a, in a relationship that is establishing trust from the get-go. And so we, we oftentimes say it like this, we're going to meet people at their point of need and meet those most basic needs. We call them the essential services, think food insecurity, diaper pantry, um, in some cases, personal hygiene, cleaning supplies um, to support their family, their household, whatever the size of that family is. So by meeting people at that point of need and just showing them that kind of love and attention and that, hey, I'm there for you, um, is what ultimately, and the consistency, right? Doing that consistently, um, over a period of time, and and then ultimately that establishes relationship, and relationship is where we can dig in a little deeper and find out the root causes of um, 
you know, that poverty crisis so that we can then begin to uh, kind of chart a path or walk with them on what they see as their path um, to self-sufficiency. Um, and really what we're establishing is by being a resiliency hub, we are now trying to teach resiliency. I've oftentimes had people in poverty are incredibly resilient. They know how to survive. Um, but I, I think we want to move from survive to thrive and uh, moving forward so that they can, you know, whatever that might be today, enjoy the American dream. I like to think of it as what is their dream um, and walk with them on that journey. I love that you made the point not only to survive, but thrive. Um, Cause I think, you know, the essential ones is like half of the battle, the essential immediate needs that people have, but to, you know, influence that greater development, I think getting those needs met first so that the trust is there and then they can look to you for further services is just um, an amazing thing that you're able to offer here with your team. Yeah. It's uh, one thing to, you know, give somebody something to eat as the old phrase says, but you know, to teach them how to fish, right? Maybe mm-hmm. not literally, but you know, Hey, let's go out and make that live in and that, you know, increase your annual income so that not only can you purchase your own food, but in the same right, you can raise your overall quality of life, not just for you, but your family. Absolutely. And as you're talking about this um, earlier today, I was lucky enough to get a tour and just kind of hear a little bit more about the services you provide. So I think people would really want to like just hear about some of those amazing programs and job development. And I know you have a lot of big plans for the future. So maybe just walk us through some of those. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, uh, there's a lot, you hear the numbers and the volume of, of, of reach. Um, in the last 12 months, for instance, we've served, uh, close to 5,000 households through our five impact areas. A lot of that's through food insecurity, but workforce development, supportive housing, family stability, youth empowerment, um, anti-trafficking, um, working with survivors in a drop-in center, all of the different programs that we have across the board. And I certainly can go into more detail if need be, but I think really it comes down to the individual story, right? Everybody has got their own journey and um, probably I could sum up what we do really in, in, in a story. You know, I'm thinking about a single mom, um, you know, her name is Tishan. Uh, Tishan is, uh, was living homeless when we first met her. Uh, I mean, she was living in an abandoned uh, row home, had no electricity, no running water. She was there with her two girls. Um, she was coming to us to get food. And uh, she did that for a period of time. And um, then she began to like volunteer occasionally. And as we built a relationship with her, we realized that she was in this kind of difficult situation, not knowing that up front. Um, as we discovered that, we really encouraged her, hey, what would it look like for you to get your own place with your own girls? And she really didn't think she could. But um, so we started with a job. She got her first job. Um, uh, it's her first job, her first job since we had met her. She was working and creating some financial income for her and her girls. And uh, we did just that. We engaged her with our family stability program and um, just kind of case management, a little bit of cash assistance. We're able to help her get into that. Some of my own staff actually purchased bunk beds and comforter sets um, for her girls. It was the first time they had ever had uh, their own beds to sleep in um, and their own. And they had a bunk bed and they got their own comforter set. And um and, and then we realized that the job she worked in wasn't kind of getting it done. And so she applied for another job that was really more around her identity and her interests. She wanted to work in childcare. And so we were able to plug her into a childcare center actually in a public high school. 
which was really great because now when school's closed, she's home with her girls, right? In the evening, she's not working. She's home with her girls. So not only is it a better paying job, a better quality job, she now has benefits for the first time, health insurance, uh, retirement, um, secure uh, you know, income. She's doing something she loves and she still gets to be uh, the great mom that she is and always has been. And, and now she's just making it, right? She's um, she's on her way. Matter of fact, we're in a conversation now with her about moving out of that place to a better place, wow. something nicer and what that would look like and can she afford it? And, um, you know, so we've referred her to some of our financial services classes as well as uh, one of the conditions upon her getting hired at that um, childcare center was that she, got, she gets her GED. So she was attending our GED classes here at City of Refuge. And um, good news, she just took um, her first two tests and um, we're waiting for the report. But um, she believes that she walked away there feeling confident that she had passed those first two of four tests to get her GD. So this is what we mean by that journey to self-sufficiency, right? I mean, she's not getting it done all on her own. We just uh, built that trusting relationship, um, provided for her basic needs just continue to love and care and support her however we could. But she did it, right? She got the job. She signed the lease. She's taking care of those girls, right? This is her journey. Mm-hmm. We just, I, I, we, we got to be the Yoda, right? The whisper, <laughs> right. We're the, we're the Tishan whisperer. <laughs> but um, what an amazing story of transformation. That's what we mean by light out the transformation. I feel like that's transformation personified. And it's just such a, beautiful story. And I think just the fact that um, City of Refuge has stayed with her all the way, you know, not just necessarily stopping it, giving her the tools to succeed, but just continuing to nurture her success story and just build on those skills that were already there. But like, once those immediate needs are met, you can start thinking, wow, like things you never thought you could achieve before now, because you're not stuck in survival mode, you know? Correct. Yeah. She she went from uh, surviving in an abandoned house, uh, coming to a food pantry to uh, putting her own money in her pocket, going home to her own uh, apartment and uh, getting it done. And that's just, um, that's empowering. Yeah, no, that that actually, that really touched me. Um, and, you know, moving back to um, thinking about the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the direct pay provision is having a huge impact on nonprofits like City of Refuge that can utilize solar and then use those benefits to, again, put it back into the community. So the question I have for you is, what will you be able to do with the Resilience Hub at City of Refuge main campus that you wouldn't necessarily have been able to do before or I guess could do better than before? Yeah, I mean, obviously the idea of solar energy and the fact that we'll have ownership of the system is critical because every um, bit of that solar energy is is saving the dollars going out the door that we would otherwise pay. So not only are we uh, increasing the capacity of our operational budget to continue to do good work and expand the work, but in, in the same right, we're also contributing to the larger, um, you know, environment. Um, uh, green energy is is so valuable. Uh, while it's expensive up front, you, you want to believe the long-term costs and impact, not only economically, but um, to our environment is uh, critical. So we're real excited to be a part of it and glad that that, um, you know, that act allowed us as a nonprofit to participate um, in the program and um, the process and we're super um, excited to get it going and see, quote, how much it would save our organization operationally on a monthly basis. Um, you know, when you're running a large operation like this, uh, the cost of energy is um, certainly something that, that, that impacts your, your monthly budget. So uh, what will we do with those dollars? We'll obviously reallocate them into finding and walking with more 
with more Tishans. More Tishans, I like that. Um, so I'm not sure if everyone caught it at the beginning, but I did introduce you as Pastor Billy. And I know that City of Refuge is a faith-based organization. So how does your faith intersect with your social justice work? Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm, my history is that I am a pastor. I pastored a local church here in the Brooklyn community and continue to do that. Um, City Refuge was something we felt like we needed to kind of uh, do something different. So we started this separate organization. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have a doctrinal statement. We don't practice any type of, uh, um, uh, you know, creeds or, you know, um, religious services. Um, but my faith very much informs our work um, in that taking care of the poor, the idea of thriving and not just surviving. Oftentimes think of it as an abundant life, right? We, um, I think everybody deserves to have an abundant life and abundance is not always as the world would define it. Abundance is as a person would define it. What is that journey? What does that look like for them? And can they achieve it, right? Not everybody is going to be a star uh, in the NFL or Major League Baseball or NBA. Not everyone is going to be the president of the United States or a congressman or a mayor, but they could. But in addition to that, some are just going to be very content and happy in the middle class. And that might even be lower middle class, but um, also matters of justice and social justice, I think, um, are part. I, I always call... Um, God, the original social justice warrior. Um, and I think the things that matter to God matter to me. And so um, my faith very much informs our work and how we do it and why we do it um, and our solutions around it. Uh, again, not necessarily, a, you know, a, a religious services, creeds or clearances, that kind of thing, but um, very much a part of who I am and why I do what I do. In talking with you, I know that you have deep deep roots in Baltimore and throughout the years, I'm sure you've seen it evolve and change. And this is not the only resiliency hub in Baltimore. And I think a lot of times from an outsider perspective, when people think of Baltimore, they think of all the negative connotations first, like the poverty, violence, which is widespread in a lot of um, cities around the country. But I think another angle to look at it is this is an area for energy resilience. These resilience hubs, they're new, but they're, they're you know popping up in Baltimore and they're serving the community. And so how do you think like in using energy resilience is Baltimore kind of setting an example for other cities around the country? Well, I, you know, I, I want to think that Baltimore is, um, and its history has been the first for a lot of things, good, bad, and ugly, unfortunately. I like the idea of us um, leading uh, the way, hopefully, or at least one of the cities leading the way around green energy and a green energy revolution. Um, you know, just a few miles, maybe less than three miles from here, uh, one of the largest um, coal export stations is uh, in Curtis Bay, it's our next door neighbor. Um, just down the street from that coal export location is a, a petroleum collection point where petroleum is coming off. And um, it's very exciting for me to think that we're changing the trajectory of that and that we could be a part of that as a city um, across our resiliency hubs. I think even the model of resiliency hubs is something that Baltimore is leading the way on. And uh, one of the things that excites me is because the city, the office of mayor's office of sustainability has made a very calculated effort to partner with community-based organizations because they understand that Baltimore is a collection of neighborhoods. And of those neighborhoods, those community-based organizations that serve them 
uh, are the most trusted valued partner. It's where people who are in crisis turn. And so I, I appreciate that the city sees that and has decided to partner with organizations, churches, and others. There can be a cohesion between public, private, and, and, um, and, and neighborhoods to collectively impact um, and change maybe the things we're known for, right? Um, South Baltimore is home to three of the largest incinerators, uh, maybe the only three incinerators in the city. We also have coal coming from uh, the mountains to our port and being exported right here. And um, I think we can um, impact um, those opportunities um, in a good way by bringing more green energy. And the fact that you're doing that with nonprofits, you're increasing the capacity long-term to um, for them to survive and thrive serving uh, the neighbors and the neighborhoods they serve. Absolutely. In, in your many years of working with the South Baltimore community and beyond, uh, what are some key lessons that you've learned? Never give up. Love unconditional as much as possible and be present. You know, I think there's a lot of people that love to tell neighborhoods like ours what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And they sweep in and sweep out, you know, fly in and fly out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, something that I hope at the end of my days that people will say, that's a guy who gave himself to that neighborhood and to that community. And um, in City of Refuge and Pastor Billy Humphrey could be counted one. Um, we could lean on them. Now, I'm sure sometimes we have to say no and people don't like that, but I, I want to believe that we're an organization that people can count on. And I think that's important. Interdependency is critical. Trust in relationships is critical. And, um, you know, I don't see the 5,000 families that we've served over the last 12 months as just some number. Each one of them rest, represents a person or, or a group of persons, right? Because they're households, they're families. And they come in all different shapes and sizes, colors, socioeconomic uh, positions. They speak different languages and they keep coming, which is what excites me. It's why I get up in the morning because I get to have some type of relationship or this organization and my staff get to have some type of relationship with all those families. And um, they put their trust in us. And so we have to stand with them. Mm hmm. And I think just today, kind of seeing everything up front and speaking with you, you can see how immersed you are in your work. And I know that one thing you said was being present, but I think another thing is the consistency that y'all have being a trusted community institution. And I also think you, you have a beautiful story of legacy here, you know, just growing up like two streets down, going to church so close. And then, as you said earlier today, you're bringing it home. And I think that legacy, you know, will just continue on because you have the vision and you have the love for your community and you've seen it grow and develop. So it's just, it's a beautiful thing to see. Thank you very much. Yeah. I tell everybody the simplest of what I do is I'm a hope dealer. I deal some hope and not dope. (laughs) (laughs) We we have an old t-shirt. We don't have any in print at the moment, but it said bringing hope to life. Right. I mean, at the simplest of what we do, we're we're bringing the hope to life where we, we get to see that in somebody and, and uh, watch that fulfilled. And there's just joy in that work. This has all been great. I'm just going to end it off on a hopeful note with my um, final questions, kind of a two-part. But if you had a window into the future, how do you think the community resilience work being done now will shape 
Baltimore neighborhoods and communities? And what does that look like specifically for your community? Yeah, again, I think I think strengthening the partnership between government and civic and um, social organizations in neighborhoods uh, ultimately build trust and relationship with neighbors who are in crisis to their to their government. And I think that's a good thing. I think when we can come together like that, we're better. As, as the old phrase says, we're better together. Um, together, we can stand together. We can make an impact together. We can overcome any adversity together. We can make for a better future for our kids and our grandkids and, and the generations to come that will be future Baltimore residents and neighbors and you know, for City of Refuge and the Brooklyn community, you know, we've had a lot of adversity. We're the unfortunate home of, of uh, location of the largest mass shooting in the history of Baltimore on July 2nd. And I uh, want to believe that over time, that reputation will change as being one of the most violent neighborhoods or one of the poorest neighborhoods. Or, and, and it will change and will highlight and will celebrate things that matter more and that we are one of the most diverse neighborhoods in Baltimore, um, that we are um, a neighborhood that is resilient and stands and overcomes and has come back and is, and is thriving again. I think that's my hope. Um, I hope for better days. I hope for not only transformation in, in the lives of individuals and families, but also communities across Baltimore. Um, I think that's critical. Um, you know, we've had enough um, uh, unhealthy separation with redlining and our history there and other things, but, you know, um, it's time to bring Baltimore back. Let's do it. You know, every day here, you're just bringing Baltimore back even more. And um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you. It's been great talking with you today. And thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure.